listening to the Vineyard Church's UK and Ireland podcast. The following audio was taken from the Cause to Live For 2022, our annual event for students' 20s and 30s. My name is Putty Putman, not technically, but prophetically, ask someone who was here earlier. And um, I'm from the States, as you can tell, I've got a weird accent, um, but I love the UK. I've been told my heritage is from here. I think I believe it. I married uh, a woman named Brittany, so I'm practically married to the island, and um, it's wonderful to be here. I'm a a vineyard pastor in the States. I've been a pastor uh, for about 12 years, and I'm just preparing to church plant, actually. Um, And so there's just a little bit about me. I'm not going to try and recap this afternoon. That was this afternoon. I suppose, are the talks recorded? Yeah, so they could probably get it later. If you missed it, you can get it later, and that'll be great. Um, But tonight, I want to talk about a not unrelated, uh, but somewhat separate issue. And that is the, the topic of identity. This is such an important and incredibly important topic right now. And in my experience, there's few of us who don't just like feel the importance of that, just like kind of immediately, viscerally almost. Um, And it's so important, I think, for a few reasons. You know, the first is, is this. If you want to do this kingdom thing effectively, it turns out that identity really matters. And there's many reasons for that. Jesus kind of sums it up this way. He says, hey, you know, a good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit, and you'll recognize the quality of the tree based on the quality of fruit. So if you want to bear a lot of good fruit, become a good tree, is basically what Jesus is saying. And that's a metaphor where he's saying this, look, if you want to bear kingdom fruit, and I'm just going to go out on a ledge and say, if you're spending your Friday night at church, you're probably at least moderately interested in bearing some kingdom fruit in your life. The way to bear kingdom fruit is to be a kingdom tree. Who you are matters to this thing. And what I found on top of that is that there's no risk-free way to partner with God. You ever found that? There's no risk-free way to partner with God. Anytime you step into a moment that God's inviting you in to do something kingdom, it always inherently has risk attached. Why? Because if there's no risk, you're not opening any space for God to fill. So risk is fundamentally attached to this thing. And what that means is this. If my identity is not solid, and my identity is strongly connected to, oh, I don't know what you might think of me, then it's not just a risk I'm taking, but I'm actually going through a micro-identity crisis. Because it's like, if I do something and this doesn't work and I look stupid and you think I'm stupid, now I don't know who I am anymore. And so we actually negotiate these little identity things every time that God uh, asks us to step into something and that's part of why it can be so hard to be consistent when it comes to this kingdom stuff. 
we come to a conference and we have these transcendent, beautiful moments and, you know, we, we listen to just profound, amazing speakers and, <laughs> we, we, you know, we, we hear maybe great stories or, or we have a friend who, or, or we're touched or whatever it is and we come, on, we come back like with this high. Maybe I'm the only one. But it's easy to come back with this high and we're like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be serious for God now. And we step in and we take risks and we take risks and we take risks for like two or three weeks. And then the gas runs out of the tank. And our life settles to not that far from where we were before. That's actually because the baseline hasn't changed. The tree hasn't changed. You're just a tree trying harder to squeeze out fruit. Which doesn't seem to be the way they do it from what I can tell. Our identity really matters in this thing. So it matters from a kingdom fruitfulness point of view, but um, you'll no doubt not be surprised to hear me say it also matters because of this particular moment in our culture. There's a tremendous amount of conversation about identity in our culture. What does it mean? How does it work? Where does it come from? All of these are profound questions in our culture, and what can be really difficult is this, there's a, there's a biblical story behind all of that, which is what we're going to talk about tonight. But there's also a cultural story that our world is trying to hand us in that space. And it's very, very, very difficult if the world around us is hammering us with that story all day, every day, and we don't have anywhere near as much in the biblical category. It's easy to get... I mean, if anything, just attention overwhelmed by it. And what we need as believers, I believe in this time where more than ever our society is trying to tell us a story about identity, about who we are, how we find who we are, and so on. More than ever before, if we don't have really solid roots in the biblical version of it, we're just going to get bowled over by sheer volume. And when that happens, that can be really tough. That can be really hard. And so I want to talk about identity tonight. And the, the, the world has a, a version of identity that, I mean, you could wrap it up in many ways, but the story might be something like this on the whole. Find out who you are and be true to that person. And, you know, on, on the surface, depending on what you mean by those words, depending on where finding out who you are comes from, Depending on being true to who you are and what that means, I don't know that I necessarily entirely disagree with that, but it's all kind of in the nuance of what's particularly meant by that. It turns out that there's kind of two different ways to think about the world in terms of where does meaning come from in our world. One approach says that meaning is mediated to our world. And what that means is it means meaning comes to our world from the outside in. It's something that, that exists out there that comes toward our world from the outside. And the story of the scriptures say that that's where God's version of meaning comes from. Why? Because God exists transcendent above, beyond the world. And so God's meaning comes into our world from him who is not defined and limited here. That's why we believe that we have a book that's not like entirely of this world. 
That's why we believe in a savior who incarnated from outside this world into this world. That right there is the picture of meaning coming from the outside in. If ever there was one, God himself came from the outside in. And so we can understand truth and meaning and, 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 uh, and these things as something coming from the outside in, or we can understand truth and meaning as something that's generated from the inside and sort of comes out. And, and what's happened in our Western culture over the last five, uh, I don't know, three centuries or so, is our world has sort of cut off the idea of truth or meaning coming from the outside in and has reinvested all our understanding in the thought that truth and meaning can be discovered or created or architected or whatever from inside the world and just in and of itself. This is why, by the way, scientists have replaced priests. Four or five hundred years ago, if you wanted to know the truth, where did you go? You went to the priest. Why did you go to the priest? Because the priest was the one who knew the word of God, the source of truth. The priest was the one who understood meaning mediated from the outside in. But when we renegotiate that and we say, I don't really care about meaning from the outside, meaning comes from the inside, what happens is your scientist becomes your priest. Why? Because the scientist is the one that can read the omens of the experiments and can tell you the truth. This is why, by the way, the word scientific fact, the tone that comes with that, it's actually the very same tone that people used to use with the word dogma. You ever notice that? Scientific fact means shut up. Conversation over. You can't argue with it. We've relocated meaning from something that could exist out there to something that's inherently generated in here. Now, I don't necessarily think that that's entirely all bad. But the problem is the Bible so far as I can tell, seems to take really seriously the idea that truth and meaning exists beyond the world and comes to our world from the outside. Versus like when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 and he says, the things that are unseen are eternal, but the things that are seen are transient. That's a great example of that right there. Is it saying that there's nothing to this world? Of course that's not what it's saying. But what it's saying is there's something fleeting here that isn't fleeting in God's world. The things that are true out there are somehow true in a more durable way, I could put it that way, than the things that are true here. So our culture by and large has kind of blown up this idea. And what's happened is that idea of where does meaning come from when you start asking the question about, well, where does the meaning of me come from? How do I understand myself? If you blow up the idea that truth or meaning can come from the outside, the only thing that's left is this thought. I guess the meaning of me is something that needs to be discovered and created here. And isn't that exactly the story our culture would tell us? Find yourself. Discover yourself. It's this search of like, let me build the building blocks here to figure out who I am. 
And uh, again, there actually is some meaning that's connected to this world. I don't think that all bottom-up meaning is bad. The problem is this. The meaning that comes in is somehow more true than the meaning that comes from the inside. And so whenever we come up with something here that doesn't match what God's truth coming into our world would look like, we wind up in this weird dissonance that's really strange. And that's actually what's happening a whole lot in this conversation about identity. In the Christian world, we we often define the words pride and humility, in my opinion, inaccurately. Or maybe at least I would say in an unhelpful way. If you're like me, you've probably heard a sermon or two about the idea that pride is like thinking too well of yourself. And humility is this thought that like you should kind of think, I don't know, appropriately lowly of yourself. Something like that. And so there's this idea that like there's some line somewhere between pride and humility. You think low enough of yourself, underneath that line you're good. You go too high, it's not a good place to be. Because, like, I mean, let's be honest, who wants to be prideful? We don't want to be prideful. But I don't think that that's a helpful definition, and here's why. I've tried it out, and it's really hard to find that line. What I've found is that whatever I believe about myself, if I'm trying to measure is it too high or is it too low, the enemy, Satan, will come in, and he'll really quickly tell me it's too high. So I'm like, I think lower of myself and then lower of myself, and then lower, and then lower. And pretty soon I'm like, I hate myself. It doesn't actually work in practice. But I think what's more important than that is this, is this kind of bigger idea. It's this. I don't think the essence of, of pride and humility has to do with whether you think good about yourself or not. I think that's missing the point. I think pride and humility are about appropriately understanding your relationship to God and who he is and who you are. Put another way, I would say this way. Pride is not understanding that he's the potter and I'm the clay. And humility is rightly reckoning that he's the creator and I'm the created. Do you have any artists in the room? Anybody? I mean, I'm not saying like professional artists, okay? It's like, I don't care if you sell your stuff. We've got at least one confident artist. A plus. There we, okay, I can see a few more. The lights are a little weird. We've got artists in the room, right? And, and <clears throat> imagine this. Um, Adora, right? All right, Adora, stand up real quick. I'm going to use you as an example. I'm, I'm sorry, but I know your name, so I can do this, right? Um, all right, so like what medium do you create in? Pen, pencil, paint, oh, a lot of mediums. Okay, All right. So let's imagine, let's imagine that there's a, there's a painting that she creates, okay? And uh, what's a painting that you've made? Sea and sunset and... Oh, that sounds nice. Is that a real place? Can I go there? <laughs> no? Okay. So kind of a nature scene, right? Sea and water and all of this kind of stuff, right? So imagine that I've gone to some art exhibit where her paintings are hanging. And she's got this one up of uh, nature scape. It's kind of what it sounds like, right? And let's hypothesize 
just for the sake of making this point a little bit clearer, let's hypothesize that she had painted an actual place. Pick a place that you want to say you painted. Eden. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> We're at a good church conference now. Okay. <laughs> so, so she's painted Eden, right? And um, let's, say, so let's say that I'm there and... Uh, you know, she's there too, and we're at this art exhibit. In fact, come on up here. We'll, we'll mock this, this, this out here, okay? Come on. Woo-hoo! Come on up. Yeah, come on up. This will be good. It's always more fun to do stuff together. Okay. So let's imagine that we're, we're at an art exhibit, okay? She's the creator, and we're examining her art right here in front of us. Now, now, now let, me, um, let me kind of role play a couple of things, and let's just think through how these work, like practically, okay? So, so let's say this, okay? I'm going to die. <laughs> okay, so we're, lo- we're looking at this. We're looking at this, okay? And I'm like, oh, what, did you, you, you really, yeah. that was you? Yeah. You did that. That's pretty good. It's better than I could do. Not your first time. No, not, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Okay, so what, what is that? What am I looking at here? Um, well, it's a sunshine. It's the sea. The sun reflecting onto the sea. That's the basic idea. That's the basic idea. Okay, interesting. Um, I don't think that's what that is. Okay, okay. No, no, no. You see, I know you think it's the sea, but it's the snow. Okay, and I know you think that's the sun, but it's actually the moon, and, and, and that's what's actually happening in that painting. Did you know that? Did you know that's what you painted? Art is subjective. <laughs> that was brilliant. So, so look at this, right? She gives a very polite postmodern answer. Art is subjective. Meaning is discovered from the inside, Right? That's what she just said. That's, that's what she just said, right? But you'll notice, you'll notice, right, that I didn't change her opinion of what she just made. She was polite and excused the fact that I misunderstood what she created, right? But here, here's the actual fact of the matter. is that the creator gets to define the creation. Now, I might interpret it differently, but that doesn't change the fact that she, as the creator, created something on purpose. And if I misinterpret it, it doesn't change the fact that it's her creation and she created something specific. Now, let's try a different thing on for style. You're doing great, okay? <laughs> so let's, let's try something else. So, okay, we've got same painting again. First time we've seen it, okay? So, okay, so, so all right, so you were just saying that's the, the sea and the sun and... And all of that. And, okay, I think I see. I see what you're doing there. Um, how how long did that take you to paint? Um, maybe six hours. Six hours. Okay, that's a good. That's good. And, and do you do this often or? Uh, no, inspired moments. Inspired moments. Okay, yeah, that's really cool. So, um, Adora, I think you're cool, and I want I want you to know that I think you're cool. So I want to let you know that I think that's trash. Like, I think that's really bad. You're great, but the painting's terrible, really. I mean, I, if I think about you, and then I think about the painting, it's just really obvious to me how great you are and how bad that is. 
I just want you to know that. Does that make you feel good right now? Are you feeling like great about? Come see, come saw. (laughs) (laughs) 50-50. Okay, now try that versus try this. Okay? Again, same thing. Painting the sun and the the ocean and all that. I said, wow, you, you, you painted that. That's amazing. That's really phenomenal. In fact, I, I can really see like the intentionality that you put in that. I see the care you put in that. In fact, now if I really want to compliment her, this would be what I'd say. Oh, I see you in there. Wow. It's beautiful. If you want to praise the creator, reckoning rightly the creator and the created really matters. We do this thing real easily in the faith where we're like, I have to put myself down to make God look good somehow. As if he's in some sort of competition with us. You know, as if he's confused about the fact that we're the painting and he's the artist. Now, if you want to praise the artist, you do two things. First of all, You receive the art for what the artist says it is. You don't try and define it for yourself. Because compared to what they're doing and what's flowing through them to create that, you're an observer. I'm not in the middle of that. So I say, hey, you you said that that's that? That is exactly it. And if I want to lift up the artist, I don't just accept the art for what the artist says it is. I actually praise the art and recognize the artist in the art. And you know what happens? All of us said it at the same time. Why? Because it tugged on your heart so much that you involuntarily responded. What if you're his workmanship? created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're his masterpiece. He's the artist. You're the art. And our job is twofold. The first is this. If he's the artist and we're the art, he's the potter, we're the clay, the first thing that we need to do is we need to let the artist define the art. Let the the truth come from the outside in. And then secondly... I need to allow myself to see myself and maybe other people (laughs) and recognize God in us and to realize that doesn't make you prideful. You know what's actually pride? It's saying the creator is wrong about who I am and I'm such a loser to make the creator awesome. That's actually saying I define me which is putting yourself in the place of God. It's actually deeply prideful. Thank you, Dora. You're amazing. The the Christian attribute of humility is this. I submit to God's definition of me. I receive who I am. And this is fundamentally at odds with the world because the world can't do that. The world's too busy trying to create ourselves because it's like meaning only comes here. So I have to find out who I am. And that happens one of a few ways. Maybe I perform to figure out who I am. 
I get some best position, I get some job, I get some whatever, some relationship. I earn who I am somehow. Or maybe I try and explore and discover what it feels good to me to figure out who I am. This idea that it's like somehow I need to like find my alignment in the world or something like that. If we're honest, just, just take a moment and think, think honestly about this. Who among us has not learned something about ourselves relatively recently? Who among us does not regularly have the experience that if I'm honest, I don't even actually see myself well. There's all this stuff inside of me that I can't even tell is inside of me. I do things and I think I know why and I actually am doing them for some other reason that I can't even see. I think I'm this way and then I live and I discover I'm actually that way. And this experience, by the way, if you're like, oh yeah, I've had that experience, I've never met someone who doesn't regularly have that experience for the entirety of their life. There are none of us that actually see ourselves accurately. Add on top of that, all the confusion that will happen if you have hurt or pain or dysfunction, if you believe like lies, all of that gets, which is already impossible. All of that gets foggy and confusing and bogged down. And the truth is, if you think that that mess is gonna find yourself, no, just honestly, if you think that mess is going to find themselves, I'll tell you what, you'd be the first one ever. You'd actually be the first one ever. Because we can't even actually see ourselves, and if we're honest, we don't even actually know ourselves. But the good news, the good news is that there is someone who sees you and knows you completely. There does exist someone who has no lack of objectivity about who you are, who's completely clear, who's never had one moment where he lost who you were in the picture somehow. There is someone who knows that and knows that perfectly, and you know what? He's actually eager to share it with you. It might sound weird to hear this at first, but I want, I want us all to know there is incredible freedom in taking the stance, I'm not even who I actually think I am. The truth is, I am who he says I am. I might think I know myself, but the truth is, I'm human, I know myself imperfectly. I might feel like I know myself, but the truth is, my feelings are fleeting and come and go. But there is one thing that will not change, which is, which is concretely and clearly true about you, and it is this. You are who God says you are. He's not wrong about that. He's not confused about that. He is not mistaken about that in the slightest. And, and what that does, actually, is that positions us in this beautiful place of freedom that liberates us from a journey that, if we're honest, we're not ready for. Think you want to explore the world and find yourself? Good luck. It's littered with destroyed people, hollowed out messes, the 
died on this hill and that hill and, and whatever it is. That's not actually the way to life. What's much better is say, you know what, God? Okay. I mean, you're, you're the potter, I'm the clay. You, you say who I am. Lord, let me hear your voice. I want to be who you say I am. There's so much power from that place. There's like, there's so much power when you get connected to that place inside. When it's not an idea. Guys, I'm not talking about an idea. This is not like philosophy I'm trying to give you. He will tell you who you are. And that can be the identity that you walk around with. This is like a lived, concrete experience. Not talking theology, I'm talking about this. I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror and I'm brushing my teeth and I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like, you're in there. You're coming out today. It can be real. And when it becomes real, you know, all the other stuff falls away. All the other stuff just crumbles and, and blows away because when you get in touch with who he says you are, it gives you great strength and great freedom. The, the, the kind of strength and freedom that you can never stand up with on your own definition of who you are. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he takes this so far, it's crazy. He's like, we can be more than conquerors because of who we are in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? Like a conqueror is someone who fights a battle and wins. More than a conqueror is someone who doesn't even need to fight a battle. Doesn't even need to show up. So let's say you have some situation where you have a, a relationship that goes sideways and someone who you used to feel really close to, right, stabs you in the back or betrays you or sells you out or whatever it is. And in that moment, you can be like, oh, this is so hard. And like there's pain in betrayal. Not to say there's no pain. But here's the thing. My identity is wrapped up with who other people believe that I am. And someone stabs me in the back. I'm going to spiral. I'm going to lose it. That's going to be the end of my good day. And maybe a bunch of days thereafter. But rather than that, what Paul is saying is he's saying, look guys, there's a place that you can get to in the security of who you are in Jesus where you don't interpret situations like that at all. Where what happens is your friend stabs you in the back and you go, oh, oh, you actually don't know who I am because God values me. God doesn't betray me. God says that I'm his kid. Jesus actually thinks that I'm worth his blood. And you apparently don't think that. So I guess you and God aren't on the same page here. And maybe that's your problem. See ya. <laughs> it's possible to have God's story of who you are in you deep enough that the stuff around you doesn't shove you off of it all the time. There's so many of these moments 
where, you know, we're, I don't know if it's like this here, but in the States, you know, people drive like maniacs and people lose it on the road all the time. Does that happen here? It's like road rage thing here. You're like, no, and a lot of people are, are like, yes, you're the one, aren't you? <laughs> right? People lose it on the road all the time, right? They pull off and people are screaming and all kinds of stuff, right? And it's ridiculous to me. You know why it's ridiculous? Because it's so obvious the issue is not the issue. That dude probably didn't even see you, first of all. And if he did, you know what? I promise you, he wasn't like, I'm going to show you the real value. <laughs> so then why are we getting caught up in all this stuff? How dare you? You're devaluing me and I can't handle it. Because all it takes is a car pulling in front of me for me to lose my sense of who I am. Guys, you are not what other people say you are. You're not even what you think you are. You are who God says you are. And God is really impressed with his creation. God says that we are his crown jewel. In fact, we're actually twice the crown jewel. The first time he creates us as the crown jewel in Genesis 1. And he says something absolutely incredible and believable about us. He says that we're made in the image and likeness of God. Made in his image and likeness. A lot of people get all, like, that, try and figure out what that means and can get into deep theological weeds and, and whatever. An image is a simple idea. What's, everybody, everybody look at that image up there. What's that image? It's me. Nope. That's a screen, turns out, and there's some light bouncing off of it. it. came from a projector, but I am definitely not on that screen. What's on that screen is an image. And what's powerful about images is this. The identification with recognizing me on that image is so powerful that you looked at that image and you didn't tell me what it actually was. You told me who I am. An image creates a recognition. If you're made in the image of God, you know what that means? It means you're a projector screen. Where the world, when God himself walks into your life, the world ought to be able to look at God and be like, oh, I recognize you. Why? Because I've seen you in him. I've seen you in her. That's what it means to be human in God's definition. That we have this unique and profound capability. And as the scriptures contemplate it, it goes so deep that honestly, I, like, I can't wrap my head around it. In Colossians 2, writing about Jesus, Paul says that this, says, in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwelled bodily. Now, now think about it. Just think this through. Does God fit in this room? This is, this is not a difficult question. Answer the, does God fit in this room? No. Does God fit in this building? 
What about Nottingham? The UK? The planet? All of creation? The God who doesn't fit in all of creation, the whole fullness of deity dwelled bodily in Jesus. Apparently, a human being has the ability to hold the entirety of the God who doesn't fit in the universe. Apparently, a human being has the capability to fit the whole fullness of deity, dwells bodily in Jesus Christ. There's no part of God that didn't fit into the human person of Jesus. If that doesn't make you pause and scratch your head and come to the conclusion, I don't understand what this is, but I know that it's sacred. The God who doesn't fit on the planet fits entirely in a person. That's what it means to be made in the likeness of God. That word likeness refers to a shape. It's like a glove that's made in the likeness of a hand. There's no extra fingers. There's no fingers missing. And what God has done with our humanity is he's made us in the likeness of his shape. And what that means is our humanity is actually such a profound and beautiful and incredible thing. We, we had some conversation this afternoon. We were talking about Peters and Pauls, which is sort of just a shorthand for people who sort of live life with different engagements of like their heart or their emotions or things like that. And there's probably a lot of other different things we could scatter in there. But that kind of subject is something that we so easy to get caught up on. Be like, I'm, I'm too blank. I'm not enough blank. I've got... Too much head and not enough heart. Too much heart and not enough head. Too much common sense and not enough whatever. I'm good with people, but I'm bad with money. Whatever it is, we actually judge our shape all the time. And what we miss is that each and every one of these parts of us is like a finger in the God-shaped glove. Why do you have a mind You have a mind because God has a mind. And the plan is for God to fill your mind with his. Why do you have emotions? It's because God has emotions. Why do you have resources? It's because God has resources. Why do you have friendships? It's because God has friendships. And on and on and on. Maybe instead of judging our shape, we need to realize these are all things God wants to fill And if he's given you more of X or Y or Z, maybe that's because he's more excited to fill you up with his X, Y, and Z. And that's the whole point of what this whole Christianity thing is about. Because in the beginning, we're created image and likeness of God, the crown jewel of Genesis 1. The whole story goes sideways for a long, long time. The Old Testament's all complicated and all of this. And then eventually we come to Jesus. And you know what Paul starts talking about is he says, look, in Jesus, you're created again as his masterpiece again. But the thing is, is it's not just we're just created again. We're created again in Christ Jesus. 
the whole biblical story hits this beautiful apex where in which Jesus joins himself to us. And our salvation happens because he links himself to us so tightly that his death and his resurrection actually becomes our death and our resurrection. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What's Paul saying? He's saying this. He's saying, look, the biblical story is that Jesus has been put in me and I have been put in him so much so that he's now living his life through me. That everything that happened to him happened to me. I was broken, I was messed up, I was a loser, I was a failure. But you know what? That person was crucified with Christ. That person was put to death. Everything that was wrong with how I was made has actually been killed and laid in a tomb. And when Jesus marched his way out of the tomb, three days later, I was in him marching and I was born again into new life. I became a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old had gone, the new has come. And so because of that, Christ in me is now the hope of glory into the world around me. I was joined with him so that everything he went through became my history. And now he's in me so that everything that plays forward becomes his story through my life. This is actually the Christian story. And we get it confused because we do all these weird things where we think that Jesus is separate from us now. What if there's more of him in you than you in you? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What if there's more of him in you than there is you in you? I had one day where I was out walking in the woods because I love to walk in the woods. It just does good things for my soul. And I was out walking in the woods just enjoying it. And sometimes I pray, sometimes I don't. But in this particular instance, I just decided, yeah, I'll just kind of talk with God a little bit. And I decided to just ask God a random question. And so I'm out in the woods and I'm like, God, why is it that I like the woods so much? Like, why are they so life-giving to me? Like, what's that about? And in a split second, I heard the Lord speak back to me really clearly. Now, I want to be the first to say this. Very often, when I experience the Lord speaking to me, it is muddled and foggy and confusing. I don't, I don't want you to come to any conclusion otherwise, because that would be dishonest. There are so many times where I'm like, is, is that you, God? I have no idea. And it's all, you know, that's my normal experience. But from time to time, God will speak a little more clearly. And in this instance, God answered me like just crystal clear in actual words I heard in my head. I said, God, why do I, why do I like the woods so much? Why do I find them so enjoyable? And God immediately answers back. He goes, what makes you think you're the one enjoying them? And I said, uh, 
what, what do you mean, Lord? <laughs> and he said, I'm the one who created them. I'm the one who called them good. I'm the one in you now looking at them through your eyes. You get to come along for the ride. What if he's actually in there? Like, for real. Not, not like, oh, that's a cute idea. Like, no, seriously. What if he's looking through your eyes? What if, when, when you stretch your hand out to take that risk to pray, that it's his hand in your hand? What if the words that come out of your mouth can be tangled up with his words because he actually lives in you? Like he's in there, and in fact, there's more of him in there than you. I had one time, I, uh, I was playing with my daughter on the, on the bed. She was quite a bit younger. This was a number of years ago. So I'm kind of wrestling with her, my, my, my oldest daughter. I think she was the only one we had at the time. And as I push to get up off the bed, um, because I'm wrapping up, I feel right down here in my spine, I feel the vertebrae go like this. And when they come back together, instantly my whole body is in excruciating pain and it's completely locked up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this hurts so bad. And so I kind of like waddle out of the room. And fortunately, my wife is in the other room. And so I waddle into the other room. I'm like, sweetie. I think I need you to go get the eating pad. I can't really move. <laughs> I should go, oh, you know, you can immediately see. And, and what I'm doing in my head is I'm going, did I just slip a disc? Do I need surgery? Like, what exactly is happening here? I was in really good physical shape. I was doing a lot of martial arts at the time. So it's like, I know when I get a bad injury. And this is a bad injury. And so I'm, she, she kind of runs off into the other room to get the heating pad. And I'm trying to figure out how to sit down on the sofa. Because I'm like, at least if I could sit down, maybe it'll take a little bit of the edge off. But we had kind of a low sofa. And so I'm like, I guess I just need to kind of like lean back and just Geronimo go for it. <laughs> so, so I'm leaning back, trying to negotiate how I'm going to fall into this sofa. And on my way down, this thought comes over my mind. And for a split second, it becomes the only thought in my awareness. You know, it's like sometimes you have a thought that kind of washes everything out. And for a split second, the thought in my awareness is this. Hold on, Jesus lives in me. As I'm falling, <laughs> by the time I landed on the sofa, 90, 95% of that was gone. Pain disappeared, back not locked up. The sheer awareness that Jesus is actually in me. Nobody prayed. Probably should have thought to pray. <laughs> Nobody prayed. It's just I came in contact with a reality bigger than this one. God has a story of who you are. That story is that you have died with Jesus and you were raised with Jesus and he's actually in you now, living through you to the world around you.
that is who you are. If it doesn't feel like it, that doesn't make it any less true. If you don't understand it, that doesn't make it any less true. That is who God says you are. And if you'll take the posture, the posture of humility, that I don't need to define myself, I get to receive myself, what you'll find is it actually sets you incredibly, ridiculously free. And it multiplies incredible kingdom fruit. So when you realize that the life you're living to the world is the life Jesus is living through you, your day will never be the same. Like, when that becomes real, it will never be the same. You'll never have another day at work the same. And you're like, wait a minute, Jesus is writing this email right now. <laughs> or more likely, I could yield to Jesus and let him write this email. Delete, 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 delete. Let's rewrite that part. <laughs> right? He's in you. He's in you. Let's stand and pray.